Ladies and gentlemen, we're back. We're recharged. We're, we are refueled. We are doing this every day, even on days we're not doing it. Ladies and gentlemen, election performance is the number one is number one thing you'll need to lift with. It's if man, Alex Turner, Michael Lara Jr. knows all about Alex Turner and his corny voice and his sayings, and he has joined <laughs> us here today. The man who uh, we I, I went to Hawaii expecting the beach. And expecting a nice time, and Michael Lear Jr. said, "Hey, listen up, kid. Here's a here's a choke. <laughs> it was great. So listen, uh, we are going to be talking about EUG, the 170 pound Black Belt Grand Prix. My name is Jake Watson, joined by Danny O'Donnell, and today Michael Lear Jr. Michael, how are you, man? Yo, I'm good. I'm chilling. How's everyone? Good. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a real pleasure to have you on. Uh, I've actually, I don't know if you've ever." Uh, Listen to the show, but actually, uh, it was after after you and I had our match at a fight to win. I believe it was like one something, hundred and some whatever um, <laughs> in Hawaii. It was uh, you gave me a lot of really good advice after after the show, and you were very uh, you were very forthright, and it was very humbling. And I just remember that really like changed my life. So I, I brought you up a lot to a lot of competitors who would ask me questions about like because you know sometimes like people like Rolando came on and Rolando Samson like he's like hey can I ask you guys questions and we were just like yes <laughs> totally awesome um, and yeah I would bring up the the experience of having a match with you and that was uh, very empowering for me. So now I get to thank you in person. Yeah, <sighs> yeah for sure. Awesome. So yeah, was, well, do you want do you want to start talking about? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Go. Oh, I was going to say, so do you want to start talking about um, UG Promotions? Because that's an event that me and Jake are going to be part of, and we're going to be commentating. I think it's the first one was a really good bracket, and this one's more of the same. This time it's at 170, and, and you're a part of the bracket. So do you want to talk about what, what your perception of, of the event was when you first saw it and kind of like how you're feeling going into the into the tournament? Yeah. Um, well, I feel like the EUG, as long as uh, – uh, as well as like all the other promotions that are starting up, like mm -hmm. these are really good opportunities. And like for the most part, like I've been doing the whole IBJJF circuit and other tournaments that don't really, you know, they're not like professional organizations or anything. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I started trying with like Fight to Win and other other super fight type organizations, and just more opportunities like this are are you know they're rad. They're kind of uh, uh, different from what I'm used to because I feel most comfortable with the IBJJF stuff, yep. but different rule sets and different, you know, uh, stakes, like there's money on the line and there's people watching like that type of thing. It excites me and, uh, I'm excited. Uh, like the last bracket that they had at 160, uh, looks like a lot of fun. And, uh, actually afterwards I started thinking like, that's probably the one I should have done. I'm closer yeah. to that weight now than mm -hmm. 170, but uh, uh, yeah, regardless, it's, it's going to be a good time. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the first one too, and because uh, one of your teammates, Andy Murasaki, was making his black belt debut, and he won, and he beat some really tough competitors. So, what was your what was your take on his performance at the first EUG event? Yeah, that was inspiring. Andy is amazing, and I know firsthand. I've trained with him a bunch since he was a purple belt, but uh, it's good to get. Like, it's good to put that into perspective because on one hand, I've been rolling with him and thinking like, wow, like this kid is amazing. Like, you know, this purple belt is, has got incredible ability on the mat. But then to know that like, you know, it's not just me, it's, it's everybody that's going to have a problem with him. 
literally everybody that that bracket was you know like a world sunday uh lineup so um i was very happy for him like i that was his debut and mm-hmm. uh I'm, I'm stoked to uh like for him and also for me knowing that like back when i was training with him like you know it, it just put more validity into my performances against him <laughs> like you know for we sure. would have super hard training rounds i'd be like wow you know i guess uh uh Things are changing. And purple belts are getting better, but no, he's truly one of the, the greatest already. It's cool. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and what was really really cool about seeing his performance was, you know, I've had the the pleasure of of um, and it really is of com- of competing as well against really high level competition. One thing I notice about because uh, I competed against Gustavo Batista in the Open Division of Pans, and that was super fun. Uh, actually, it wasn't. It's it was really. <laughs> hard match right but i noticed that there's shades of gustavo batista in murasaki's game like he did the the way that uh, a lot of you guys um and a lot of the i feel like competitors i've competed against from autos they love to pinch the leg and i feel like once you pinch the bottom leg you show the foot and you pinch it between your legs it, you don't get that leg back it's insane yeah yeah that's funny you say that like uh uh now that i'm teaching um like I'm starting to develop like new ways of like teaching and, and running class. And that's actually one of the, the drills that we kind of warm up with now is like, rather than just always uh, like practicing a technique where you step over the leg and then go to some pass from like the Delahiva or wherever uh, we play games to kind of warm up where uh, the person on top will be trying to step over the leg and the person on bottom is like trying to keep it away. And if they get it, that's fine. If not, like it's just like a, a cool, fun way to warm mm-hmm. up and kind of mini game the the uh, you know the whole process of passing, and then also like games like uh, or, I mean also situations like starting with the person's leg in between yours, like you're talking about, and now the person on bottom is trying to free it, and the person on top is working on like keeping it and changing angles and pinching and staying on top like that type of thing is something that i've been working on a lot with uh uh with having to teach like it's hard because for the most part when you teach a technique you teach like step over the leg and then move forward to pass Mm -hmm. but when you watch batista or you watch uh, uh andy or when i'm paying attention to how the pass is actually playing itself out when i'm rolling uh uh, you realize like that right there, that specific thing that you just pointed out, like stepping over someone's leg, pinching it and making sure that they don't let go. That's a way bigger part of the control than, you know, steps three, four, five and six of the technique. And you need to make sure that you can have that. So that's, yeah, that's kind of what we, what I've been playing with uh, as a that, instructor. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so interesting. Cause I feel like after I watched Andy, I was thinking more about it and, I feel like sometimes if I step over the leg in training and I try and pass right away, it doesn't always work out well. Like mm-hmm. I noticed Andy would, would step over the leg and he would maintain that control, and Gustavo does the same thing. And he kind of like waits for his opening. Yeah. He's not necessarily like going for the knee cut as soon as he steps over the leg. So, yeah, it was just, it was just really cool to see that, that different type of style of passing. Yeah, oh, yeah. the uh, patience is a big thing in jiu-jitsu for sure. Mm-hmm. Like not being the one to overextend yourself, forcing your – your opponent or your partner to to be the one that makes the the bad move is a huge part of it so you know getting into a position where you feel like like you know you're 
you're a little bit more safe and air force to move. That's kind of the name of the game these days, I feel. Yeah, man. And just seeing the little opportunities that uh, <clears throat> Murasaki was just going back to Murasaki and like the little opportunities he was able to take, uh, especially versus Johnny Grippo like that. That really was. I don't think anybody expected. Everybody, I think what I expected out of Murasaki was definitely around the like competitive nature of every match he had. I was like, man, this bracket's kind of hard to call because Mateus Gabriel's in the bracket and all these amazing competitors. But to see him just pounce on a tiny opening versus Gianni Grippo and pass and submit, I was like, okay, wow, that's kind of scary. I'm glad I'm you know too heavy to fight the kid in his division for sure. <laughs> Yeah, rolling with Andy, like, I know how good he is and how much on guard I have to be. And uh, uh, going into that, like, tournament, I, like, obviously Gianni is really good, but I knew he wasn't going to be – not that he's not good enough. I knew he wasn't going to be ready for how, like, how, like, particular you have to be with playing – against Andy it's not like you're in there just kind of relaxing playing the game like every grip can you know turn into a real dire situation really quickly so like you you have to be on guard with someone like that someone that's like that quick and apt to to throwing you into like a bad situation like really on the flip of like any any kind of grip change any kind of side change instantly Andy could be too far in to where you're not not only are you not going to stop the pass, but you're going to not stop the pass and end up in a really bad side control where you're left, you know, like how you threw the triangle over or whatever. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's interesting. Like now that I'm, I'm, you know, I just, like I got my second degree. So it was like six years of black belt and I'm more experienced or more of a veteran. Like what I'm starting to realize is like, it's not the older legends that you have to look out for. It's the newer generation. Like they're way hungrier, hungrier and way more uh, like they have way more potential and upside. Like Andy's like 20 or something like that. You know, something ridiculous. He's super young, super strong and very hungry. And, and to me, that's like way more dangerous than like, now where i'm at i want to fight the older guys like i, I feel like i just <laughs> i i've earned like the right to start fighting the legends of the sport i've fended mm -hmm. off against younger guys for year after like year after year at this point like now i want to see if uh like i'm getting to the point where i what i feel that i want is those opportunities to fight like lucas lepre or lanky or gabriel rollo or Celso Vinicius, like those guys are sick and, and a little bit like, you know, like they're, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, definitely. Fighting them would be a huge honor for me. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what, what I want to do. Yeah, I think it's super interesting that you mentioned that you're like the veteran now. You just got your second degree. Uh, you've been in black belt for six years, but it's kind of weird to think of you as a veteran because you're still super young. Is it is it weird, like, seeing yourself as a veteran now? Because uh, you're not obviously obviously you're not old like it's not like you can compete in the masters divisions or anything and um i think a lot of people still remember like when you first got your black belt and they still see you as like one of the new like part of the new generation of jiu-jitsu so is it weird to see yourself as a as a veteran um i don't know i've i've been living it i've been here you know <laughs> I've, mm -hmm. 
you know, I've <clears throat> pretty much fought. I've been more or less active for the past, you know, like 10 years now, 15 years, somewhere in between 10 and 15. And, and like, there was maybe one year in my black belt kind of stint or career that I competed less than, like, I think five times. I think it was like 2017 or something like that. But um, now I'm starting to feel like, you know, I've been here for a while. Like, especially now when I see new people coming into the division and feeling their energy coming into the division, like, I kind of remember where, like, it just makes me, it reminds me of, you know, when I first came into Black Belt 2. And and I feel like I've been, yeah, I've, it's not like I've shied away from competing against the newer guys. Like, I compete against the newer guys every year almost. Seems. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for me, like, it doesn't seem that way. <laughs> I feel the, the experience that I've been through and the experiences I've been through. But um, I think because, like, like, I'm not super big on the scene in any particular way, like, uh People always, or not even people, but like I'll hear on an interview or I mean an article on Flow or somewhere that like I've been not active or something. It's just that I don't say anything. I I just keep doing what I'm doing. (laughs) For the most part, I've been active. I've been in the top five of some division on Flow for the past like three or four years. So like it's, it's just, I'm not really one for the attention mm-hmm. yeah i mean shoot i i've noticed it too so i mean when i when i when i'm as matched up against you i definitely was kind of uh because i think at the, you were uh a matchup that i was very nervous for um because i had just beaten orlando montero and yeah. then i was ranked at uh, medium heavy and then seth daniels like hey uh get you know the the whole match was made and i was so nervous because I was like, man, I watched Michael Lear versus Marcus Tinoco. How am I ever going to pass that guy's guard? <laughs> I was like, this yeah. is a freak. You know what I mean? Like, I was a kid, and, and I still am. And uh, and I just was so not ready for, I think, the level of maturity that you had. So I think it's more also not just, like, what I mean is, like, a, as a competitor. Like, yeah. again, I made yeah. a tiny little mistake, and I and you, you hugged my head and passed my guard. And... Yeah. um. I was just, you know, I wasn't, it was a big lesson for me. And I think the reason probably why people think you're of like what Danny said of kind of the quote unquote, a little older generation is probably just, you know, the way that you compete, you know, you compete like you're a seasoned person as well. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like, um, like I remember going back to that, that super fight we had in Hawaii, like. I took the fight right after my fight to win in San Diego. Like I fought someone from, I fought Peter Frank and then he offered me uh, to fight in Hawaii. And I said, yeah. And then he said, what about Jake Watson? And I said, yeah. And, uh, and then I started, I was like, okay, well, like what's he been up to? And I started looking up like who you've been fighting and, I was like, oh, damn, he's been killing it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I'd been training here. I had just moved to Colorado, so I'd been training a little bit with uh, Easton at his academies. And, 
And I just remember thinking, like, wait a minute, what did I just get myself into? <laughs> well, it's funny, like, it's funny to see what we both kind of came into the match like. Yeah. We both came into the match really nervous, thinking, yeah. like, oh no. And then it turned out that, um, yeah, dude, it just goes to show, like, one little, like, freaking, because I, I remember I, I tried to get under your leg, and I think I did. And you actually came up to me after the fight. You said, hey, you, you did the same thing. You haven't changed anything since Roberto did exactly what I just did to you. You're like, I studied you, and then Roberto did this to you, and you didn't even change yeah. it. And I was like, he, and Michael goes, did you even, did you, did you study? And I was like, no. <laughs> and uh, I was just like, I was just like, and he was like, well, maybe you might want to start doing that, because I definitely studied your game. And I was like, damn. And then I started yeah. studying after that, and uh, that was like the biggest freaking wake-up call ever, was when you said, hey, man, you should study, like, you know. Your first year at Black Belt, you should probably get used to that now, so you don't have to get used to it later. Yeah, it's, and then, good, uh, to, it's good to have. Like, I remember in that in our match specifically, like all of the matches I watched of you, you did really well. Like you beat Orlando, and even in the matches where you you lost, I think like you still had really good matches, like with Roberto and all these these other competitors. I can't really remember now, but like uh, uh, I just remember like one moment against Roberto I was like huh that's what Roberto found as his opening and like it's good to hold on to those types of things because when you're in there you know it's good to test them to see what what uh, either they if they still have that opening or you know it's just it, it's always good to have some kind of not even game plan but idea of what you're going up against I feel yeah for sure no, I, I completely agree I feel like now at this point who I've fought most, cons or there's two people I've fought really consistently now, and that's uh, uh, Marcio Andre and Jonathan Alves. And every time we fight each other, like we're both like downloading more information on each other. <laughs> like I feel them come back with better ways to deal with things that I'm doing, and me the same. And uh, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting. Like sometimes. Uh, it's like before I would think not to do that. Like I don't want to show myself or expose myself. I'd rather fight them once, get the win, and then be done. But then now I'm starting to think like these are just opportunities to learn and grow and like pitting your, or setting yourself against the best in the world essentially like Jonathan and Marcio multiple times. Like it's really pushing me like – uh, and it's not even for me. I feel now like those opportunities to grow are most beneficial for my students at the academy. Like the better I can come back to them with understanding of jujitsu, like it's obviously you know it's a, a good thing for them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, so yeah, that's kind of what it's been. Yeah. So you've been competing a lot recently, doing a lot of like the IBJJF opens. Um, are those kind of those? I know you've done like the the Abu Dhabi, uh, the the Pro Tour, or whatever, whatever it's called, the Abu Dhabi mm -hmm. series leading up to the World Pro. Um, are those kind of the main rule sets you're looking to compete in, or do you want to get onto more fight to wins? Do you have any mm -hmm. desire to do nogi tournaments, anything like that? Honestly, with with having the academy now, uh, I have to take things almost day by day. Like I, mm -hmm. I can't really plan ahead too far because I don't know what's going to be happening at the academy and if I can. Uh, leave or train properly or or be in a, a mindset to kind of like and uh, uh, go in there 
So like the IBJJFs are nice because like I can register all the way up until like a week before. Yeah. Um, and decide to go or not. Um, and then uh, uh, it's cool that the IBJJF Nogi events are are allowing heel hooks now too because now that's forced me to uh, really learn that game. Um, I knew very little before you know, a year, like less than a year ago, probably. Uh, like at the beginning of quarantine was the first time I really sat down and started looking at them. I had only like understood them through like peripheral, like kind of attention mm-hmm. uh, uh, towards them. But uh, uh, so now like, it's cool that like Indianapolis open in a few weeks or whatever, whatever opens come up, they usually do gi and no gi. So it's good practice to do the heel hooks and stuff and uh and then past that like plotting out like a few big tournaments a year like eug is going to be big um yeah. obviously and i'm you know setting up uh, a lot of my uh month of may so i can be prepared for that and then um fight to win is is coming out to to denver specifically uh, for two events, so um, I'll be getting ready for that, and then uh, and they just announced that. So like like I said, like day by day, it just kind of what yeah. makes most sense is what I'll I'll pursue, and uh, uh, the main focus for me now is the academy and my mm-hmm. students. But my personal uh, competition career is a part of that. I feel like I feel like it it really helps the academy. It helps me teach at the academy. And I, it's just fun too. So, yeah, that's awesome. That's you you mentioned for sure. Yeah, you mentioned um, trying to learn the heel hooks and stuff, and that you kind of started applying your energy towards that during quarantine. Just out of curiosity, because I know a lot of like traditional, really high level gi competitors are going through that same process. How did you go about approaching learning the leg locks and the heel hook stuff? Um, just starting with, honestly, my uh, a few of my students know way more than me. Um, they're purple belts, brown belts, and uh, 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 even one of the black belts that, that trains at the academy. Um, they're just, they have more, they're more familiar with heel hooks. They have more no-gi backgrounds. Like we train no-gi t- uh, all day, Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday. Mm-hmm. So it's attracted a lot of no-gi uh, jujitsu practitioners who train with heel hooks and stuff. Uh, at their previous academies so it's good to start with like first of all just trying to get rid of uh uh first trying to defend against their heel hooks like when they go for them like now it's a different game like all of my training partners in the past for the most part didn't attack my my knees (laughs) really (laughs) they didn't attack the heel hooks or anything like that so right off the bat, when I started feeling or getting those different looks, um, I, I had to kind of learn, you know, a, a real base level. And then the next step was uh, not just defending um, and evading, but uh, actually defending, like letting them in a little bit more and learning how to defend and escape. And then after that, this is where it started to change for me because those two things were easy for me. I feel like staying out of the the leg entanglement uh, was more or less easy because 
uh, I kind of understand how to play on top. I understand how to windshield wipe and the, the fencing of the legs and, and whatnot. And then escaping, I knew the basic escape maneuvers. So just get to those as quickly as possible, essentially, was my, my kind of game plan. And I've watched, like, you know, people do it. So I kind of have an idea of how it works. And, uh, and then past that, where I really started or where I first started encountering like the struggle was uh, trying to attack heel hooks of my own because it's such a different like feel than like playing X guard or doing any kind of like one leg X. Like the way you move your body, I feel is different and the levers are all different on the legs. So, and uh, the worst part about attacking for me is when I felt like I started focusing more on hunting for heel hooks I was getting heel hooked more often because it was hard for me to understand how to do both versus if I just stay out or if I just focus on escaping, I feel like that's more uh, like I'm more comfortable with that. So now I'm starting to learn how to like, you know, get into the battle of like, you know, not only escaping, but you know, attacking heel hooks of my own. And I don't think I'll, I'll really get into it. Like I think, even like if I go into ADCC trials or if I do more of these like uh, Nogi IBJJF events, like I'm not really going to look for them all that much, but I do want to understand them. So yeah. Yeah. You have a, you have a really good in the gi, like a really good X guard, really good single leg X. So I would think that that type of experience of being able to get both your feet inside your opponent's legs and, Mm -hmm. and, know that leg pummeling game would help but did you you didn't feel like that helped too much with your heel hook it does it does for sure and it does for sure when it comes to me escaping because i feel like i have like on top i know how to exit x guard and one leg x and Mm -hmm. stay in control but like the problem is like it's rewiring some of my understanding because the way you move an x guard and a a gi ibjjf situation versus how you're trying to heel hook someone in a nogi situation like you use your hooks differently the angles are different and just using their leg like learning how their leg works is like all a part of it that you don't really need when you're playing IBJJFV rules so uh so on one hand yeah i have all this experience but on the other hand, like it gets in the way sometimes because you think you know something really well, and you do know, like I do know a part of it, but there's a whole other part that like takes true, uh, like like release of ego to kind of yeah. like, accept and learn and and really understand where I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I feel like, dude. I've been so inspired by watching who's number one. Like seeing Tyra Tolo this last show, like straight up inspired me. Like I actually literally signed up for a Nogi tournament after I got done watching who's number one. I literally opened a tournament registration. I was only going to do Gi in. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do Nogi too. Just because I feel like, I don't know, man. I'm inspired. To, I'm gonna get my Dars yeah. all good now. I'm gonna. I'm gonna be yeah. stepping on people's shins. I'm like, <laughs> like, dude. That's he's like, dude. I feel like there's so much room to grow. There's so much more jujitsu to be done. You know, yeah. it's so cool. I'm just inspired. The, the roots. Uh, Kate and Ty had a 
like played a huge influence on my like new nogi like endeavor and yeah. understanding of jujitsu like watching them uh, really opened my eyes to a lot of things nogi and when we first opened the academy like uh, we had them over to the uh, we had them over for a week for free training and uh, they that's exactly what they taught they taught one one seminar they taught the leg pain and then another seminar they taught the dars and uh yeah, it was cool they're they're amazing like, i mean their performances left this past or friday were nuts like incredible Cade uh, looked amazing against they both looked amazing against two incredible competitors from yeah. start to finish like from start to finish they were in control of it it's it's cool yeah, it was, it was awesome. So, so what's your opinion on where professional jiu-jitsu is, is kind of going now? Because Jake mentioned he was number one, and I listened to to Gordon on Joe Rogan's podcast just just recently, just before this, and uh, he was kind of talking about how he feels like gi competition is going to kind of fall by the wayside. I'm not saying I agree with that, but that was that was his opinion. Do you feel like no gi is kind of going to be the catalyst for jiu-jitsu's growth into the mainstream, or do you feel like gi still has a place in that? Um, I. Not that I well okay, uh, I don't disagree with that statement that gi tournaments are gonna fall to the wayside. Like, but I don't agree fully. I think gi tournaments will always be around because gi jujitsu is what's most practical, like for everybody to do. Like, mm. if you if you like, there's so many people that want to train gi every day, like four or five times a week. And uh, those competitions, maybe they're not, like, the most conducive for, like, spectator, like, you know, super fight type idea or type, you know, events. Mm -hmm. yep. But gi tournaments are necessary. People want to train in the gi. It's a strong practice that, you know, it's, like, almost, you know, worldwide at this point that, yeah. like... Um, like we obviously haven't figured out how to turn it into the most spectator friendly thing, but it's also to me, I'm, I'm starting to believe that like, maybe that's not what it's meant for. Like, uh, like all of my members at the Academy love to compete and I'm starting to realize like it's a, it's a big part of jujitsu. So, uh, like I think the world championships will continue to grow. I think IBJJF will continue to grow. Um, Maybe super fight events like who's number one stop supporting gi, but it doesn't really matter. Like I don't, I don't think that's the point. Like, and not that there's anything wrong with events like that. I really like who's number one or Polaris or any of those events. Like, there's just it's just different, you know. It's just a different thing, and there's a lane for all of it. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. I think uh, it's important for people to – and also like my professor is a pretty traditional guy and uh, you know I don't really do a lot of no-gi at my academy. But I mean we've also seen people – and for competitors like that, like what you just talked about is very true. I think people – gi, gi jiu-jitsu is definitely going to lend itself more to like the 40-plus-year-old people who aren't going to want to throw heel hooks and wrestle yeah. – you know, wrestle each other as hard as they possibly can for a long time. And it's like dang, man, like you got to be – you know, willing to put your body through some stuff to be successful as a no-gi competitor in a lot of instances because yeah. it is hard and it's hard on your body. Um, 
one thing that I was really also inspired by was Mikey Musumeci and his performance against Marcelo Cohen. It's like shows like, hey, you can be very competitive in Nogi as a gi competitor too, as you know, and I think that kind of shed a lot of hope. That's why I, I'm just going to enter my name and I'm going to be competing and training and seeing how I do and using tournaments as training. Do you, do you, uh, have you ever had that kind of experience? This is just kind of an awkward question, but you have, have you ever had like such a big period of gi competition that you felt like your no gi training was mostly just competing? Uh, yeah, I haven't done a whole bunch of no gi competitions. Like I, I did uh, Nogi Worlds 2017 and 18, and I took third place. And 2018, I did the Europeans Nogi and double gold there, but it's not like there was a, a ton of like really good competitors. I fought Spaghetti BJJ. Uh, oh, he's tough. Final. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Spaghetti BJJ. Yeah. Uh, Tommy yeah. something. I forget. Who can? Yeah. Was, mm -hmm. Yeah, he's very good. Um, but is he Italian? Looking, uh, he's <laughs> Finnish. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Sweden yeah, or Finland. He's rad. His his Instagram is cool. He always has cool news. Yeah. But uh, uh, but yeah, I I don't know the the uh the tur excuse me opening the gym made me do a lot more nogi. Like at Atos, I was in training nogi very often. I was in doing it more than maybe once to two or three times a month and it would only be because i'd want to sweat a little bit and i'd go into the gym and train it's not like i was ever focused and then uh uh and then we did that nogi world like if nogi worlds was coming up we would camp for it mm -hmm. but like that type of training was super hard like we would do a lot of wrestling and a lot of exercises and and it's hard rounds, so like I didn't really get to learn a whole bunch. Um, to where now, like uh, my nogi training is more consistent. Like it's three days a week, five sessions a week, um, and against like uh, like my students who are really competitive, uh, uh, just in in training and, and rolling. Um, but it's giving me a chance to learn. Like it's a little bit more laxed. Like I'm not just hunting for points or score or winning training rounds. Like I'm actually kind of developing a game and understanding of nogi. So now I'm feeling more confident with trying to get out there and do something with my nogi. Uh, Orlando Open was the first time I competed nogi for like I think three years now. So. Uh, uh, I'll keep it up. Indianapolis Open, I think I'll do the Nogi portion and um, possibly ADCC trials later this year and maybe some other things too. I've played around with uh, taking a Nogi fight to me. I think that would be a good place to start too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing I was, I've was i been thinking a lot about recently, I watched a video with uh, John Donahue on Flow Grappling and he talked about how like the main goal of the training sessions for his team is like technical improvement. And you kind of yeah. talked about how when you were training at Atos and, and it might've just been because of the tournament coming up, but it was like very physical and the rounds were really hard, but it was maybe a little bit more difficult to learn like the technical nuances of Nogi. Do you feel like with your students, you focus more on like technique or does this kind of depend on the time of year? Like how close a competition is? Does that, does that question make sense? Yeah, for sure. I, I'm forced to work on my technique. Uh, like, I don't want to, you know, just 
be all physical on my my students you know like mm-hmm. a lot of the time i'm trying to perform you know certain things or or trying to understand how to chain different things and and it leads to more technical progression and then when it comes to staying in shape rather than training super hard um i'm forced to just train more consistently like my efforts i've said this before like my efforts at autos were more like a few times a week really really hard to where now with having to run the gym like i'm more at like a consistent 50 percent twice a day it leads to being like uh, like 12 sessions essentially uh, a week where I give a little bit every single not a little bit but like 50 to 60 percent is what I would say like and it, of course there's rounds where I go harder but it's not like one session where I do 10 hard rounds it's more like right you know five uh it's like six rounds in the morning that are uh like at a good pace and then 10 rounds at night that are a good pace too so it's like an hour and 45 minutes of sparring during the week every day which i i really like i i like um i think it's necessary to go through like a hard training camp and and being in a room full of killers and like i think that proves to be like you know like a huge uh like you it's really good to go through that if you want to be a competitor to know that you can put yourself in an, in that type of environment and, and handle it but uh now i'm just forced to do something else and i, I like this too i think this is actually more natural to how i want to practice jujitsu i want to do it often and less pressure and less tension <laughs> and, and uh and I enjoy it a lot. Like I enjoy jujitsu a lot. It's it's it was uh, uh, treating it like an athlete at Atos is is turning it into your profession, which is rad. And like Andre taught me a lot about being a proper athlete and and how to be disciplined and how to you know respect you know a, a, um, like respect your competitors and know that you have to have a huge workload to, to give yourself a chance to beating them. And now, um, with the gym, it's more about like, uh, uh, like you said, I have to learn technically. And with that, I have to kind of just like, I put myself in, in the gym. Um, like, not like I have to do anything, but I've, allow myself the freedom to to get better in in any way that i feel is necessary like sometimes i feel like it like i need to work on my movement so i work more in my movement like force that in my rounds um sometimes i feel like uh i need to work on my flexible flexible guards i kind of name it in my head and i start you know opening up uh flexibly i guess (laughs) uh, some days I go in and think like, okay, I need to treat this like, like I'm gonna give it my all, and I'll pick some of my tougher students and and just, you know, bang heads with them, and uh, uh, it's cool, it's fun. I feel like I'm in control over um, my 
expression of jujitsu every night, and it's leading towards me getting better. I, I think my results after opening the gym have been pretty good. Yeah, you know, we've talked to a lot of different athletes who kind of undergo the same sort of mental revelation in their training, and they can see that it's also important on you to put yourself in different situations so that you can improve. Like, I'm in that situation a little bit where it's it's wise in a training environment to, okay, let's start an awful position, or let's work something I'm not good at, whereas I feel like if you're, and I'm not saying this is a, this is maybe, maybe, and it could be a slight drawback to getting your butt kicked every day is and, – and every round you do is like, man, you only have your A game now. Whereas once you start to get to the point where like, okay, I'm very comfortable doing the other games, now I can be like, all right, let's work on everything else that I struggle with. Let's round out everything. Does that kind of resonate? Yeah, for sure. And one thing that I've found with doing that type of thing like – uh, putting yourself in the position that you usually want to stay out of. Like it gets rid of the like uh, competitive ego aspect of it. Like if you know that like your back escapes are bad, then it feels bad when someone takes your back and you're, you're like helpless in it. But if you start with the person on your back already, like you, it's not like you're losing. You're, you're in there. Like you put yourself there, like, you, like for some reason it changes your mindset when you're in there. Like someone mm -hmm. passes, or I mean, starts to put you in the position that you need work on and forces you to work on it versus you accepting it that you need the work. So you put yourself there. You're like, you have way more mental clarity and like you're, you're going to be more able to learn. Um, so yeah. We, we do that at the gym a lot. A lot of our sparring at the gym, we start from positions. And I'll say, like, if the person uh, – uh, if you tap your partner, then you start in the bottom of turtle or something. You know? Oh, okay. Like, I, I do that type of stuff at the gym all the time. And I've seen it – like, specific training and starting from positions is just, like, it's such a good way to get better. It just is. Like sparring is great and you should do plenty of rounds, but forcing yourself into positions, uh, for, you know, that reason among many other reasons is like so good. It's really important. I saw one of my students who like, who was good. He's like, he had a lot of potential, but during quarantine, uh, uh, when I had to shut the gym down, him and I would, uh, do an hour of specific training every morning like three four times a week and we would do five or six minute rounds where he would start in the x guard and then if he got a sweep or if i escaped we'd switch top to bottom and then we would do like maybe 10 positions like that or five positions twice like that and i saw his game like shoot up his understanding of jujitsu was like you know like so much better than if we were just sparring and going hard like it, you know, it takes time to get better. It's super tough and complicated. So if you can slowly just learn things position by position, I feel like that's a great way. Yeah, that's awesome. So I, I know you brought it up a couple of times, but you, you recently opened a school. I mean, maybe not too recent, but within the past couple of years, you opened your school in Denver. It's called Logos, right? Yep. 
Okay, so um, what what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that you didn't expect going into it that you've had to overcome outside of like COVID? Because yeah, everyone's been so dealing with that. Pretty tough. <laughs> yeah. Um, twenty twenty in general was a pretty insane little <laughs> year, yeah. but um, um. Maybe like I a guess, change to your routine or like just the type of students that are showing up, something like that maybe. Yeah. Uh, um, honestly, the like I feel like running an academy is like it is and has been the dream all along for me personally. Like I kind of – wanted this even more so than like anything competitive like competition wise or yeah achievement wise competition like in competitions or anything like uh it's all really fulfilling to me so even the harder aspects of running the academy like um it's not so bad you know training twice a day and teaching twice a day, like multiple times a day and uh, dealing with all the personalities that I think uh, usually is really overwhelming for instructors. Like, I'm just happy that people are enthusiastic about jujitsu, and, and uh, if I can help them, like, I think that's my job. Like, of course, it's tiring sometimes, like dealing mm-hmm. with, with the numbers of, of students at the jujitsu academy. But at the end of the day, that's just a. I just take it as a community of people that appreciate jiu-jitsu and I'm really appreciative of that and them so um (coughs) it's pretty cool like it's obviously a lot to handle especially with still trying to compete and um also having ideas to do other things with jiu-jitsu and projects that I'm looking at but uh but it's fun it's a good time in what ways do you feel like coaching has affected your jiu-jitsu in, the, like, in just the way you approach it? You know what I mean? Because like, ever since I started coaching, I feel like it became its own version of training. It, it almost became, now I care so much about the reasons why I do techniques that now it's improved my jiu-jitsu in a sort of way. Yeah, I've been teaching since I was in Orange Belt. Well, I started teaching like kids' classes when I was in Orange Belt when I was like 13. And I haven't really stopped teaching ever since like uh, – uh, like I always knew, not that I, I knew, but uh, uh, I always figured like no matter what I do in competition, like teaching is eventually how I'm going to end up making a living out of jujitsu. So I better build this skill. And I kind of knew that from an early, early age that like being able to relay your jujitsu is how you, you know, benefit others, which is how you get that support. So, um, uh, right away, like when I started teaching kids, when I started teaching, uh, uh, beginners, when I started teaching morning classes at autos, um, I noticed that like, it really helps your understanding because first you have to like systemize your jujitsu, you know, you have to, uh, you have to systemize it so you can give it, like you have to explain to people, this is why I do this. And if this doesn't work, then I move to this and there's these options and uh, uh, being able to present that in a class like where 
you're not only showing them what you do, but like giving it to them in drill form, technique form, all of that. Like, uh, that really helps your understanding of jujitsu. And then, um, uh, and then now having the academy, it's like another level of that because before when I would teach at Autos or at any other academy, like my job was to teach and that's it to where now like these people's jujitsu journeys or their their experiences and, and everything like it's my responsibility to some degree so like just because i taught the technique and i know the technique works and i know i can hit it i still have to pay attention to are they understanding it can they like can they perform it and if not it's my fault like I have to go back to, oh, well, it's because when I was explaining to it to them, I said it this way, or I made them drill it this way, and that's not really the way that they should have drilled it or learned it. And, like, having to go back and, like, I, I take teaching as something that's really hard. Like, I think teaching jiu-jitsu is really, really hard, and it's overlooked. Like, people that are good at jiu-jitsu assume that it's easy. And... uh uh like i think like that's the wrong attitude i think you have to leave every class thinking like what were my mistakes in communicating whatever i was i was you know setting out to do like if you know i wanted them to understand x guard more like did i do that or are they just more confused because really easily you could just confuse people and blame it on them essentially like oh you guys are confused but i know what i'm doing so it's fine <laughs> so like that type of thing has been like the newest like 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 just dynamic in my head of of uh of me versus teaching essentially like it's yeah you kind of communicate this and it, like things like i like we were talking about earlier, that game and, and turning jujitsu into, you know, uh, uh, like actually explaining to people what's happening, not just giving them techniques to try to get wrong over and over and over until they figure it out themselves, which I feel like is pretty, like pretty much how jujitsu is learned generally. Like, but instead explain like being able to pass on, like this is actually how you grapple, you know. And, yeah, uh, uh, it's fun. That's what I'm trying to do right now at the gym. Is it difficult for you sometimes when you're teaching? Because, like, you brought up X Garden as an example, and I think, like you said, sometimes there's this tipping point where you give too much details, and it's just more confusing, especially depending on the person's level. So, has it been hard to balance trying to teach to? people in the same room who have like more experience versus less experience or do you typically have people around the same level in your classes the worst i ever experienced that and it's probably the worst you could experience that anywhere ever is at autos when i would teach at autos um it was rad because like i felt like i was a professor at this like true like top you know university of, of sorts of jiu-jitsu but uh, but also it was incredibly hard because some, like I can name classes where there were a hundred plus people in front of me 
and they ranged from Gustavo Batista at one end of the, the lineup and someone's like two or three people's first day on the other <laughs> end of the lineup. And it's like, okay, what do I choose to teach here where Gustavo isn't wasting his time and nor is, are the white belts. So like that was serious practice in that, you know, in that way, in that situation of like, how do you cater to everybody? But um, uh, uh, I, on a much smaller level, I feel that here at, uh, at my academy too, like when I first opened, I, I, uh, I drew a lot of like pretty competitive, like jujitsu enthusiasts to, to come train with me. So there's some really good jujitsu practitioners at the academy and uh at logos and uh and now we're starting to come around to acquiring like more beginners and white belts and now it's uh more about okay again the same thing like being able to choose you know what to teach and how more importantly how to teach it to where both the black belt and the white belts uh the black belts and the white belts you know are or having a productive session. And uh, uh, I think it can be done because for the most part, whether you're a white belt or a black belt, you should be doing pretty similar things. Like if you're a black belt, you should be, if you're on top, basing and trying to knee cut or Toriata pass or whatever, leg drag or whatever it is, you know, in good base and, you know, in, in good uh, form or whatever. And if you're a white belt, like what, should you not be doing those things? No, you should be doing those things too. So yeah. uh, when I teach something like if it's going to be a leg drag, I teach it, I try to teach it in a way where the white belt is understanding the more broad stroke of how to leg drag someone. And also when I'm teaching it, give details to the black belts to where they can like up their leg drag skills with more like finer nuanced little adjustments and uh, uh that's kind of where i try and then also uh uh i try to get the upper belts to drill with the lower belts because i feel like the same way i'm talking about how uh or we've talked about how teaching helps you like helping a white belt might prove to be a better way for you to to learn right now than actually drilling you know if you're a, a upper belt like if you if you uh, uh, spend, uh, I tell my my students like if maybe not every single day choose a white belt to drill with, but once a week, you know, one session a week, choose to partner up with a white belt and really help them. Not only does that really tremendously help them, but it will help you, and it helps me a lot too. It helps me as an instructor to have. Uh, uh, my students helping my students so uh yeah I, I try to keep all that in mind when it comes to teaching uh, and how i want the gym to run and, and how i want my students to practice jiu-jitsu we do like an hour of technique a day and we do one hour of sparring a day like that's our evening sessions like we do uh like 5 is our fundamentals and i'll teach like 40 minutes of some type of, uh, uh, 40 minutes of teaching and then 20 minutes of like 
specific sparring. And then from 6.30 to 7.30 is like an hour of technique. Um, and I teach drills, technique, whatever. And then we do an hour of sparring afterwards. So it's a lot of jujitsu. That's um, a lot of jujitsu. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. And then in the morning we have uh, 45 minutes of teaching and 45 minutes of sparring. So um, it's cool. People love jujitsu. That's what I think. Like, I think marketing and business, you know, gurus and just business marketing culture, I guess, in general. Uh, like, that's where ju it doesn't apply to jujitsu because usually they think, like, if you go to someone that is going to give you business advice, they tell you to, like, slow down the classes and not make them so. Uh, rigorous with the technique or not so aggressive with the sparring but like people love to do jiu-jitsu teach them a lot make them spar a lot and like they they love it they love going harder they love pushing themselves and for the most part it it's not as uh scary as as it seems getting tapped you know like it actually like it, people are okay with it so i think uh, uh, right, like at Logos, I just subject people to jujitsu and a lot of it, and it goes well. It's been going well, at least. That's awesome. So, so when you do like your technique portion, your sparring portion of your classes, is the sparring portion mandatory for everyone who does the technique portion, or do you kind of let people no. um, play around with whatever they, they feel be is best? Yeah, some people come in only for fundamentals. Some people come in for fundamentals and technique. Some people only come in for uh, technique and sparring. Some people just come in for sparring. Some people, like if they, if they can't make it in time and they just want to get some rounds in, they'll come in for an hour of sparring. Or if people or like uh, 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 some people can only make it into the gym twice a week, so they choose to do all three hours, you know, twice a week rather than training a little bit multiple times a week. So I I just try to make the gym and the mats as available as possible, and I try to encourage people to come in as much as they can, and. Uh, and I just try to offer as much jujitsu as possible. That's pretty cool because I feel like I feel like that's different from a lot of gyms or the traditional model where the instructor wants the students to do a particular type of training with a certain amount of sparring, certain amount of drilling. But I feel like what you're doing is pretty cool because if someone's injured, maybe they can just do the technique and they can still yeah. get a lot out of it. Like they can kind of fit the jujitsu to their needs and, and where they're at in life at the current at the current moment. So you, you felt that people have responded well to, to that model? Definitely, definitely. Uh, uh, like I don't really mind, like uh, I leave it open for them to come in just for sparring if they want to. And if they, if someone does come for sparring, like, uh, uh, I don't mind it. But for the most part, like everybody tries to come for as much as they can. Like, uh, anytime I explain that to, to people, they think like, Oh, do some people just want to come for sparring then? It's like, <laughs> yeah, but also they kind of realize they're missing out on a lot. Uh, they've yeah. taken my classes and, and they know like they need to come in. So, um, yeah, it's different for sure. But, um, 
uh, it was kind of my dream, my vision all along was to just more casually offer jujitsu training than like always having it to be so formal into like, like, uh, you have to warm up with us to do the technique and spar. Um, I just always advise them, like, if they are coming in for sparring, like, hey, you're not warmed up, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah you. careful. Like, you better not, you know, start going hard, fresh out of, you know, out of the car, essentially. Like, like take rounds to warm up if you need to. Come five, ten minutes before sparring and make sure you're, you're uh, at least, you know, loose to some degree. And don't be competitive in your first round or two like get your body moving first so like there's that and then uh uh um yeah like you said like if people are injured like it's cool to to allow them to just come in and drill and i encourage that too and uh, uh yeah it's a little bit different about our academy but i want to expand it too eventually i want you know like more sessions like i can only handle what i can or i can only provide what i can handle right now but eventually i want you know lunchtime technique and sparring and maybe somewhere around 4 30 that type of thing too like afternoon technique and sparring but uh right now it's uh it is what it is it's cool yeah, I, you I mentioned more places were like that to be honest yeah, I think that's really cool. And and you mentioned too earlier about like how many sessions you're running throughout the day and you're leading kind of all of them. So what do you what are some of the things you anticipate having to change at the academy in order for like like let's say you need a day off or something, you need to have like good instructors who you trust, like being able to teach or lead the court the classes. Um, is that a transition that you're kind of preparing for already? Are you kind of grooming some of your students for that? Or is that something you kind of see happening more down the line? Uh, for sure. I have a, a lot uh, in mind when it comes to uh, when it comes to just acquiring support and like, you know, taking on more support from people. That way we can turn around and, and kind of service more, more people and more people's jujitsu practice. So, like uh, 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 for as far as instructors go, uh, like I don't have anyone to uh, my my partner here at the gym and and who was my like assistant instructor and who you know did everything with me. Uh, uh, YJ, he uh, had to kind of step away from the gym and he's having a family and. We're all super happy for him, but uh, he was kind of my guy to do, to do those things. But um, like I have uh, a lot of uh, other help and support from Autos, and I have a lot of really good students that uh, I have a lot of faith in, um, and I'm you know investing in their jujitsu and helping them uh, learn more and grow so one day that they can be a bigger part in the academy. And uh, uh, also, I'm starting a, a program that uh, uh, it's almost like a, uh, I'm starting like a scholarship program at the gym where um, I'm helping people with uh, like turning their jujitsu practice into something more professional now 
that way, uh, uh, like, uh, the program's intentions are to kind of, like, help them acquire skills that will uh, uh, be good for trying to make a living out of jujitsu one day, however that means. And I think that's really important because, uh, like, usually scholarship programs at gyms or any type of support is more in the direction of competing, which is great, but what's uh, more important than competing is, like we, we've been talking about, like, if you want to, uh, if you want jiu-jitsu to be your life, you can't just compete. Like it's, yeah. you, you've got to be able to offer your, your uh, uh, skills to other people. You have to be able to service other people in their jiu-jitsu practice. So, like I'm uh, uh, in the like beginning phases of starting this program. I already have two people that are like my uh, uh, like featured like practitioners for mm-hmm. what we're gonna do with this program. Their names are uh, Rachel Ranshaw. She's a brown belt. Um, she took second place at Pans and Pans No Gi, and um, she's been working with us for. Of, uh, almost a year now, and uh, Norman Velasquez, who's a, a blue belt. Um, he's a wrestler out of Iowa State, and oh, wow. uh, uh, graduated with a degree in criminology there. And now he's like a, a, like full time jujitsu. And uh, uh, on one hand, like they're giving me a lot of support at the gym helping me, you know, with everything you could imagine uh, when it comes to uh, making sure the academy runs. And then on the other hand, I help them with their competition aspirations and uh, also, like I said, building their skills into how to make a living off of jiu-jitsu one day, which, you know, there's a lot of, of different little things that I'm helping them with. So um, I don't remember the original question but yeah yeah uh i'm trying to you know help people so they help me that's that's uh uh kind of the way jujitsu works i guess yeah yeah that's awesome i feel like you're doing a lot of things different at your academy and i feel like you're seeing the benefits like firsthand like the scholarship program um just the way you run your classes i think that's really cool that you are kind of taking a different approach that's unique to you and you're not just following the classic model that you've seen at other academies throughout the years yeah jiu jitsu is like really new to think that we have this yeah. figured out it's it would be kind of crazy like when you look at the history of jiu jitsu there's like the you know the graces that were like less than like you know more or less than like 100 years ago you yeah. know in developing this and then you fast forward to like not too long, like 10 years ago when like the, the most like, uh, like 30, 40 years ago when, you know, the OGs first came to America and opened academies. And then like 20 years ago to 10 years ago when like the cool competitive legends came and moved to, to America and opened up gyms and now I'm a part of the wave of the black belt American that's underneath them opening up my own gym moving inland because they're all on the coast essentially yeah um, and now trying to figure out how I do my thing so uh, 
you know, I, I feel like, um, yeah, jujitsu is like, we haven't figured this out. And there's still a lot of room to grow in it. I think jujitsu is in its infant stage still. The fact that, like, you know, who's number one in all these events, uh, EUG, like, they're barely coming out. Like, it just goes to show, like, like this, like, we're going to get things wrong a lot. Like, yeah. And I think, uh, like, rule sets have been, have missed the mark. I think class structures, you know, can be fixed or, or adjusted to, to help people. And way more academies could be opened uh, to offer different things for whatever people are looking for in jujitsu. And, and uh, I want to be on the, the forefront of that for sure when it comes to kind of, you know, I don't know, just having a really dope jujitsu academy. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Man, I've learned so much talking to you today. I really, really appreciate your time. Jake, did you have any more questions for, for Michael before we kind of wrap up? No, this man. Up? Just want, as always, just wanted to thank you, dude. It was, a, it was a real pleasure having you on. We're really excited to get to hang out with you, pick your brain a little bit more uh, down in Vegas. That's uh, June 12th. It's going to be UG2. And uh, yeah, man, we're just, we're, we're real huge fans. And uh, as I've, I've always been, even before we fought, um, and uh, for a couple weeks after, I wasn't a fan of yours. I'm just joking. But uh, <laughs> no, I, uh, I'm, we're really excited, man. And we know that you're doing great things. You're a very intelligent person. So uh, yeah, we're just wishing you all the best. If you ever need any help promoting any of the podcast stuff that you got, then let us know. And um, I guess uh, now is a good time to let you know, ladies and gentlemen, if you, if you, uh, man, you do enough bicep curls, right? If you do enough bicep curls, then your gi, you'll have to get like a specially tailored gi. And when you do that, put an election performance patch on it. And that'll be like a nice testimony to get people to also download the app, which is available on the iTunes and the app store. If you're a weirdo and have an Android, um, <laughs> I have been Jake Wasson's Danny O'Donnell. We also want to thank Matakaba BJJ and Marcio Andre Academy along with Agro Brand. And uh, stay tuned for more episodes. Today was What was today's episode, Mr. O'Donnell? This one is 94. Oh, my gosh. My goodness. What an absolute journey it's been. Who's going to be guest 100? I don't know. No one knows. I, I don't even I, I don't know uh, but we'll, we'll find out and uh, we'll get back to you guys but Mr. Liara Jr. thank you so much Danny do you have anything else to add? Uh, uh, I just much Michael if you're ever in Denver please stop by uh, any yeah. of you or anyone listening is there any uh, sponsors or any friends any, anyone you want to shout out? Um, well uh, everyone back at the gym they're, they're like my heart and soul right now Logos Jiu Jitsu and the brand that's, I mean, the, the people that have been supporting me since the beginning, uh, show your role. Those are, uh, the, that's my support system. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you guys for having me, too. Of course, man. Sure. Thanks again for coming mm -hmm. on, and thanks, everyone, for listening. This was episode 95 or 94 of the Open Guard cast, and, yeah, we'll be back shortly with some new episodes, so stay tuned. Thanks again. Cool. Peace. Awesome. Thank you.